0: Welcome to the third episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. This week, we're looking at the career of the much-missed great of West Indian cricket, Malcolm Marshall. And in our second innings, we'll focus on England's triumphant 86-87 tour Down Under. Unlike Ben Stokes at Headingley, we don't do this entirely off our own bat, The 80s and 90s cricket show is sponsored by Anderton Law, the firm that specialises in employment matters. So if you have any issues at work, do not hesitate to contact them at andertonlaw.co.uk. Our guests this week are Chris Broad, former England batsman and international cricketer of the season in 86-87. Hello, Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Chris. I hope you are too. We're also joined by senior Australian cricket writer, all the way from Australia, Mike Coward. Hello, Mike.
1: Hello, Gary. Nice to be with you. Great
0: to have you along. And regular at the 80s and 90s Cricket Show, we're joined by the author and veteran BBC cricket reporter, Pat Murphy. Hello, Pat. Hello, Gary. I love it when people call me a veteran. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and don't forget that you can find us on the web at '80s and '90scricket.co.uk, and it's also been a pleasure to see so many listeners contacting us via Twitter at Crickshow '80s '90s. Um, you've had some feedback on our first two episodes, Pat. Yeah, it's been terrific, Gary. I think I think we're in danger of having to get an agent, all of us, you know.
2: <laughs> um, I, I've, I've been, the downloads have been brilliant, and and the, the Twitterati have been out in force. Remarkably, almost all of them positive. A couple of the suggestions from the Twitterati are anatomically impossible, but apart from that, <laughs> things have gone very well indeed. I'm, I'm delighted that most of the people picked up on Derek Pringle and. Um, the, the 1992 World Cup final when Steve Buckner didn't give him clear LBWs. I remember <laughs> tweeting at the time, I bet he'll talk about that. And as night follows day, he was on his long run, wasn't he? Uh, he was. Know, It'd be wrong to say he remembers things vividly from 28 years away. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well,
0: you can, you can make your comments about today's show at Crick Show 80s and 90s, should you be so inclined. But we, we move on to Malcolm Marshall, uh, the much-missed Malcolm Marshall, as I said. He's a Barbadian, and uh, he was born in 1958, and he left us at a tragically young age of 41 in 1999. The highlights of his career is, well, in 81 test matches he took 376 wickets at the outrageous average of 20.94 and he was on the losing side in just nine of those 81 tests um his wisdom obituary says that he stood out even amongst those great west indian quicks of the 80s and 90s um i'll start with you pat from 100 yards away what made him stand out variety He
2: had two bouncers, one a bit of a tennis ball bouncer that you could watch and then swat it away if you were lucky. And then just when you thought you were in your comfort zone, one would whiz down and you think, wow, where did that one come from? Andy Roberts, for me, is the only one of those great West Indian fast bowlers that conveyor belt, that production line, that rivals him in terms of all-round virtuosity. So you talk about 25 years from Roberts, um, Holder, Holding, all the way through to um, Ambrose and Walsh when they packed up in 2000. And that list of West Indies fast bowlers was a fantastically impressive one. But Marshall was, in my opinion, top of the list. And when he died in 1999, I was out in South Africa with the England team. And to a man, those who'd played with and against him, the respect that they had for Malcolm Marshall, which wasn't just the obvious sympathy for somebody who died so young. They just rhapsodised about Malcolm Marshall's dexterity, variety, versatility. He gave so much to his county as well. You can often know the measure of an overseas player, top overseas player, when you see how much they gave their county. And Malcolm Marshall did so much for Hampshire. I don't quite know why Hampshire didn't win more trophies when you consider they had Robin Smith, Chris Smith, Tremlett, Maru, Parks, a wicketkeeper, Nicholas as captain, and above all, Malcolm Marshall. He was
0: a great bowler. He was a great bowler, and it's one of his seasons for Hampshire, he took 134 wickets in the county championship. I mean, sometimes these days, I don't think Hampshire take 134 wickets as a team in the county championship, <laughs> never mind uh, as, as a bowler. Gary, he also in that season, 1982, sorry to interrupt you,
2: but it's worth pointing out that Marshall, in my opinion, was the best batsman among all those great West Indies fast bowlers. He scored 633 runs at 22 in the county championship with 100. He loved to bat. He was a cavalier, a buccaneer, a very, very dangerous man coming in at number eight. So that just added to his all round appeal to a county
0: side. Yes, he was, a, he was a scary number eight in, in the sense of if you were 400 and something, he, he'd get out for sort of 12. But if you were 127 for six, somehow he'd dig in and get his 60s and 70s or indeed one of his seven first class hundreds, as you as you point out, Pat. Well, that's the the view from kind of 100 yards away, which is often the best view, I think, of Malcolm Marshall. But what was the view like from 20 yards away? Uh, Chris, you were uh, you faced up to him a few times, no doubt.
3: Yeah, I did a number of times and I'd like to pick up on, on what you uh, introduced him as, the much missed. I have to say from 20 yards away, I don't miss him at all. <laughs> um, he was, he was as, as Pat rightly says, he was uh, very scary. He was clever. He was someone who uh, was able to swing the ball. He had genuine pace. Um, that double pace bouncer, I mean, I, you know, I was scared with the slower one, if there was a slow one, because I didn't really recognize it. Um, but he was, for me, I mean, everyone said he, what a great man he was. What what a lovely guy. I, I did not see that at all. You know, there he is 20 yards away firing these cannons at me and getting to the end of his follow through and just staring at me and occasionally, you know, giving that, um, Hurst look as though what the heck are you doing here you know you should be back in the pavilion Uh, and I remember once I I had to go and see the physio uh, in the Hampshire the old Southampton ground Hampshire dressing room and there was a big couch in the middle of the dressing room as you walk in through the door and Marshall was laid on that and he looked at me as though how dare you come and knock on the door of the Hampshire dressing room (laughs) and I had to sort of sidle past him trying not to uh, you know, have his dagger look uh, attack me in any any way, shape or form. I just didn't like the man. I would never had a conversation with him. He always uh, gave me grief. Uh, and some years later, actually, interestingly, chatting to Gordon Greenwich, and he reckoned, I don't know whether this is true or not, but he reckoned that, uh, you know, that was a sign of respect from Malcolm Marshall, that you know, because he didn't converse with you, he thought that you were a reasonable player. Well, if that was the case, it was a strange way of showing it, I must admit.
0: Yes, you were very much the enemy if you were the, the batsman, the man with the uh, the bat in hand ready to, to do something. Not many did with the deliveries uh, coming coming down. Mike, what's the, the view from Australia about uh, Malcolm Marshall? Could he, he played a little bit of club cricket there, uh, and his record in Australia, unlike quite a few bowlers, is, is as good as it is pretty much anywhere in the world.
1: Well, I think that was probably part of his greatness, was the fact, Gary, that he, he could adapt to any conditions anywhere in the world. You know, he was an unconditionally great player. We see too many over the years whose greatness at times is conditional to certain circumstances, certain conditions, certain times, even certain crowds. Uh, Marshall was unconditionally a great cricketer. He was also, while Chris obviously had difficulty with him in terms of communication, he was very approachable too. Um, from a media point of view, um, when he was here, particularly with uh, Clive Lloydside side in eighty four five, and one thing and another, and um, again with uh, Under Viv in eighty eight eighty nine, uh, he was uh, he was respectful and he was approachable, um, which uh, unlike a couple uh, of Antiguan quicks of more recent times, <laughs> I must say. Um, interesting, I was, happened to be out with Mark Taylor today, the 39th Australian captain and a, a wonderful opening batsman and a fine envoy for the game, as you will remember. And I mentioned that I was going to be talking about uh, Malcolm tonight and he said that he was the toughest of them all to play. He recalled a moment in Antigua in 1991 and this was interesting, of course, because Marshall went into that series along with uh, Dujon and Greenwich with a lot of speculation that they were at the end of their careers. Uh, of course, he finished up with 21 wickets at 20 in the series, you know, which is just characteristic of the man. But um, Taylor said he was in position, he thought, he, looking at Marshall's wrist action, that it was certainly going to be the outie. Um, and it was suddenly the, it was one of the bouncers which got him flush on the side of the, of the helmet. Um, he said he was just extraordinary. But he also did say in that series, 1991, which was an incredibly tough series, the rancour, uh, the tension, the bitterness, it was, it was a very, very ugly series. The Australians spoke to only one or two of the West Indians, the West Indians um, only one or two of the West Indians spoke to them. And of course, Malcolm Marshall was among them. He was much loved by and respected by the Australians.
2: Can I give an example of Marshall's virtuosity from 100 yards away? Absolutely. Uh, Edgerton 1991. Early in that series, Graeme Goucher played one of the great modern test match innings by an Englishman, 154 not out, basically to win the, the Leeds test match against Marshall et al. And it was a phenomenal innings. We come to the test match at Birmingham and, and Gooch is the prized wicket, of course, in the eyes of the West Indians. And I was up in the crow's nest uh, getting a great view of the action. And Chris Broad will know where I'm talking about, uh, way up in the gods. Brilliant view. And I'm watching the way Marshall is working over the great Graham Gooch. And he's bowling him straight delivery and then the inner and he's working him out. And then Gooch was set. He'd got 40 odd. And then the last ball of the over, Gooch is playing for the inner. And with his masterly technique, he knew what he was doing. And he bowled him off stump. It just kissed the top of the off stump, took away the bail. And as I was standing outside, you see, I could hear um, the action. And that yelp of triumph from Marshall told all you need to know about, A, his respect for Gooch, because he got him. And how often was someone like Graham Gooch in his pomp, clean, bowled as his income played on but also the way he'd actually worked Graeme gooch over in the five previous deliveries it was a masterly over and he got the prize wicket with a final delivery and that was an example of what a thinking bowler he was and he was absolutely delighted his reaction told you all you needed to know about his craft and how much thought he put into the game
0: yeah, I, I remember very clearly my first uh, sight of, of Malcolm Marshall because it was in a John Player League game on on the television. And the very first first-class match I saw in 1975. Uh, Andy Roberts took 10 wickets for Hampshire against Lancashire at Egberth, and I'd always been a, a kind of huge fan of of Andy Roberts. And here was, um, was this uh, new West Indian who was going to replace Andy Roberts, and he came in off that sideways run, which was limited in length anyway, as it was in the old Sunday League. And he bowled with this sort of uh, face-on, sort of chest, open chest action, and I thought, well... You know, this fella isn't isn't much to look out for. He's no Joel Garner, he's no Michael Holding. You know, what's he doing replacing Andy Roberts? And then <laughs> you learned. Then you learned. Um I recall a, a reading a story about him um talking to Sean Pollock and uh Sean Pollock at that time was very young and he was uh South African, hadn't not very worldly, shall we say, and, and teetotal. And um it was during Malcolm Marshall's time down there uh, playing in South Africa and they would they would sit in the bar apparently Marshall with a, a brandy in hand and Sean Pollock nursing an orange juice and they would just talk mainly Malcolm Marshall of course and with a cricket ball just find the wrist positions, the finger positions, talk about how to approach the crease and use the crease and uh, Sean Pollock is always very keen to point out how much he learned from Malcolm Marshall and how much he applied and what was to turn into a wonderful career himself and while we're talking about careers I I did a bit of looking up here and I'd like to know from maybe maybe from Chris about the physical and mental side of the of the game because Malcolm Marshall played 848 matches. He delivered nigh on 100,000 deliveries and took 2,172 wickets. Now, if we think of someone today like James Anderson, he played 558 matches, that's 290 fewer, has bowled 64,000 deliveries, so that's only about uh, two-thirds the number of deliveries, and has taken 1,374 wickets, so that's, again, about two-thirds the number of, of wickets. I mean, how did he and perhaps players in general deal with the kind of workloads that were just accepted in the 80s and 90s?
3: Do you know, it, it is a very good question and one that I don't have the answer to because uh, some years ago when uh, I think Peter Moores took over the England coaching role uh, and obviously Stuart was in the team, my son, uh, at the time, he was um, there was an awful lot of discussion about players now going to the gym and spending time, uh, you know, recuperating as well as nets and playing themselves. And, you know, old players like me were going, that's not going to work. They need their (laughs) rest. They need to recuperate. You know, all this stuff about going to the gym and nets and playing, they're going to break down. And I was really quite concerned. But you look at Jimmy, you look at Stuart, and they have had amazing careers where they've rarely broken down. But then, as you rightly say, you go back to the the Marshalls, the Imran Khans, the Clive Rices, the Richard Hadleys, you know, very few of them broke down, and yet they played so much more cricket than, than the guys are playing nowadays. Maybe, you know, you know there is a, a, a school of thought now that, you know, all this gym work is good, but they need to have bowling in the middle. They need to work on their actions. They need to get their bodies used to the bowling actions, uh, you know, even if they've taken a break. So the fact that these guys were playing in their particular summers, wherever they were, then coming over to England and playing in the English summer, they were just going through the same routine. They were Their bodies didn't have chance to uh, to relax, they were just always in that mode to go out and bowl and, and that's why, presumably, they they enjoyed their, their time in county cricket where most counties had, you know, two overseas players who, who did fantastic work for the counties when they came over.
2: I think they were also handled sympathetically by their county captains. They actually knew when to give them a rest and say, right, you're not bowling this afternoon uh, because people like Marshall... Hadley and Co. They were precious cargo, weren't they? You'd be pretty dim dim as a county captain if you didn't uh, handle them in the appropriate manner. So you're talking about mutual respect there and careful tutelage and love of the game. And in the case of a lot of these West Indian cricketers, you know, social passports for them because this meant they were going to make a fair amount of money. Many of them came from humble backgrounds, appreciate what they've got uh, the chance to play on the world stage. And therefore they want to stay on as long as they possibly could.
1: I think chris 's point is a very relevant one the workload it 's been a tremendously contentious issue in Australia in recent years, particularly amongst the fast bowlers um, and even at um, a grade level at uh, pennant level, the talks and at underage level particularly that there are limits on how many bowl, how many overs a, a paceman can bowl and it 's caused a, a tremendous uh, uproar, um, particularly amongst the the oldies. Um, about that, it's it's doing them no good at all. Restricting them that because they're 16, they can only bowl eight or nine overs, etc., um, etc. Et and given the amount of support that is around them these days, from um, physical support and psychological support, it, it's a very interesting debate. I don't know whether it's been a big issue in uh, in England, but it certainly has been here. And then you look at the likes of Glenn McGrath, who just bowled on and on and on until he perhaps stepped on a ball at an inappropriate time. <laughs> um, he was always able to bowl. And uh, there, there are very different views on this. What's it been like in, uh, in England? Are, are there concerns about the amount of work or the lack of work for some of them, as Stuart suggests, as well, Chris uh, suggests?
3: I, I know that Stuart went through the same process of of not being able to bowl a certain number of overs after he he'd had a spell of four overs and it, and the older he got the more uh, overs he was allowed to bowl but he had to have a, a break and it was frustrating from his point of view uh, I'm not really uh, you know the, the go into the biomechanics of of young bodies and how they and how they materialise, how they develop. And I think that's Mm. where it's stemmed from. And, you know, it's very difficult to argue against a a medic, except when you look back and you see, you know, the bowlers of the 80s and 70s and 80s who bowled so many overs. Uh, I've heard uh, both Jimmy Anderson and um,
0: Stuart, I think, Talking about developing the wobble seam delivery and saying that it, it took not months but years to get this right and be able to bowl it in a in a test match in a in a in a match situation. And Is that
3: like Shane Warne coming out with a new delivery every every
0: <laughs> yeah. series he played against England? I, I think that took him uh, that took him five minutes looking in the big book <laughs> of uh, Shane Warne uh, mental gymnastics, wasn't it? But um, I I wonder whether. The, in the 80s, people would look back at the likes of SF Barnes and say well, why aren't the bowlers today who can bowl a, a leg cutter and uh, and an off cutter and a wobble seam and a and a skidder and a well, a zooter in Warren's case and so on. But Marshall got his success, not least because he, he had this vast variety of, of deliveries that he could call upon. Pat, do, do you think um, that bowlers just don't develop these, these deliveries these days or are busy doing slower balls out of the back of the hand for one day matches rather than developing the off cutter and the leg cutter to deal with uh, with fourth and fifth day pitches.
2: I think there's more demanded of the modern bowler, especially the one who play in almost all the various disciplines, the likes of Marshall who was a virtuoso anyway in the first place. By the way, he was quite small, you know. I don't think he was more than five foot, 10, five foot eleven, And he'd scuttle mm. in, not take a great deal out of himself, which is another plus. You compare Big Bob Willis, for example. Big Bob yeah. used to run miles and put everything into it because he wasn't just a natural. Whereas Marshall was a natural, slim, sinewy, a scuttler, uh, and the ball used to skid low too on occasions as well as those vicious bounces we talked about earlier. So he didn't really need to have too many arrows in his quiver. quiver, he had enough my word he had enough and he wouldn't have had the kind of challenges that they have now in terms of the variety of cricket to be played, I'm a great believer in trying very very hard not to compare great players with great players from other generations, although I will yield to nobody, you mentioned him early on I do believe that SF Barnes was England's greatest ever bowler, I mentioned that to a former England captain one day, he said well you're going to have to show me the footage Pat, and I said "Well, he last, <laughs> he, he last played in that 1914. Sorry I can't help, but in that series in South Africa, he only took 49 wickets and four test matches and couldn't be bothered playing in the fifth one because his wife and child were over there with him. So I'm sorry about that, but I quite like talking to people who actually saw him bowl and they thought he was the greatest. But that's en passant. I think we mustn't ever attempt to minimise what people like Marshall did in his era, compared with the various different challenges top bowlers have got now.
1: It's also interesting, um, the fraternal spirit too, isn't it, Pat? The fraternal spirit. It's yep. thought generally that Dennis Lilly taught uh, Imran, yes. the leg cutter, and then uh, it, it, it was passed on then to Marshall.
2: Safraz did it for Imran Khan, uh, reverse swing, Mike. Yes, you're yeah. absolutely right.
1: Yeah, they're very strong. The, the, the fast bowling union, they're a pretty strong group.
2: Yeah, don't yeah, don't tell the batsman anything in the bar. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: My favorite uh, spell from Malcolm Marshall was a very famous one where he he had the the broken hand and I think Old Trafford it may have been another ground. Headingley. Well, he, Lee, yeah, Headingley leads, yeah. yeah, Headingley. And he he played he came in bowled fast and then uh stopped bowling fast and and went through a kind of a kind of virtuoso almost display it was almost a kind of greatest hits reel of yeah. of deliveries as he ran Gary, through England Gary trust for, me he did, <laughs> he did bowl
3: quick
0: well, he did bowl quick. he went for bowling very very fast to merely bowling <laughs> very fast shall
3: we say I, I, uh, I, but, I have to take I have to take a little bit of credit for that because it was go and he was fielding in the gully and uh, I edged one into the gully which bounced just before him and it bounced up onto the end of his thumb and broke his thumb and then he <laughs> went to the hospital, had it x rayed, broke his thumb, came back with a plaster cast, which was, I think it was white, but we asked him to uh, bandage it up in pink, which uh, I guess probably riled him even more. And he oh, came That's a like, great idea. No, no like, kert- not a great kert- idea. So, yeah, like oh. Kertley and his armbands oh. and sweatbands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. See-
0: it's all your fault, Broad.
3: Well there you go, I'll take credit. What, what I do remember
2: about that, Chris, that he was a good enough batsman to come in bat one handed so Larry Gomes could get his
3: hundred. How how did we not get him out? I can't believe it. he did. He just <laughs> held the bat in one hand and swung. And I think he I think he got some runs as well. He kept getting it down to third man. There's a the batsman talking. How did we not <laughs> get him out? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I, I'll, I'll finish off this section on Malcolm Marshall particularly for some of our listeners who may not have, have seen him in his pomp, and he, he he really only had a pump I suppose because he was brilliant yeah. all the time but which which of today's bowlers probably are, are most like um, Malcolm Marshall I've got I've got one nomination of my own but I, I just wonder what you guys suggest Pat great question thanks for putting me in first
2: um, <laughs> In terms of his um, dexterity and longevity, I'm looking at James Anderson uh, because he's got more and more clever, uh, more and more adaptable as the years have gone on. But Marshall, you know, I can see him on the balcony at West Indies won the World Cup in '79 against England, a slight, inoffensive figure alongside the great. Bowlers and Lloyd and Rich and everybody else. So that was 79. Pretty soon he became indispensable. And he was still doing it. My word, a decade and a half later. When you're picking your world eleven from that period that I I would always have Marshall in anyway, it's because of that that I'm loath actually to think of anybody now who can actually
0: equate to him. Generally, I can't. Well, I'm going to come back at the at the end, but I, I, I'll put Chris in next. Chris, have you got anybody... You obviously see a lot of world-class cricket today, and you obviously played in a lot of world-class cricket. Dennis, is he incomparable to today?
3: I think he is, actually. I think, as Pat rightly mentioned, he's he wasn't a tall bowler, therefore he didn't get additional bounce out of the pitches. Uh, he was a skiddy bowler. Uh, you know, my initial thought was Mark Wood, but Mark Wood has no length of career because he's had injuries, and Malcolm Marshall didn't have any injuries, and he bowled as as fast as Mark Wood does as well most of the time. So uh, I don't know that there is a comparable bowler these days who has the longevity, the skill the desire, um, and the creativity to achieve, have achieved what he've achieved over his career. I, th- I think he's, you know, when you look back at the all-rounders that they were in the 80s, you know, the Hadley's, the Rice, the Imran's, the Garth LaRue's, you know, they, they, couple Devs, we were so lucky in the 80s to have all these great players who came over here most of the time and, and played. But Malcolm Marshall, you know, he probably wasn't thought of as an all-rounder, but as Pat rightly says, his batting was as good as any seven or eight and and frustrating for sides who thought that they got through the team. So I would just put him up there on his own as as a fantastic bowler. Mike, have you any thoughts on on a comparable
0: bowler today?
1: I I agree with Pat and Chris, really. I think he was. I mean, we call him incomparable, don't we, just about every every reference. The only one I would think that towards in the twilight of his career was DK Lilly. Lilly became a master of variation, change of pace, um, and had many of the tricks, some of which, of course, he taught to Marshall. I would think in, after when he became stronger again, I mean, he was phenomenally fast, as we all know, before his back went and then after, and he did become the most guileful of fast bowlers. I would think he, he would get a honorary mention, but really, frankly, I think Malcolm was incomparable.
0: The only candidate I can think of of the, the last sort of 10 years or so is a, a man that the first time I saw him I wrote him off as the new Nanty Hayward and that's Dale Stain and I think Dale Stain has something of, of Marshall's hostility and pace but also that that guile and the ability to bowl different deliveries, take wickets uh, on dead pitches. So um, my contribution would be Dale Stain. I don't know whether you think that's the closest today. I personally think that Marshall's wrist action was remarkable
2: and the best I've seen in terms of his manipulation at speed. And with the greatest Dale Steyn, tremendous bowler, of course. But I can't see any. I can't see past Malcolm Marshall in terms of his all-round virtuosity.
1: And um, Mark Taylor saying today in casual conversation that he really was of the great West Indian fast bowlers that he faced, the only one really who had the capacity to swing the ball. He was the only one who really had the guile to do it. The others would move it off the seam. But um, but Malcolm was the only one who could actually play with it and do all sorts of things with it. He he thinks too that Marshall was incomparable.
0: Fantastic. Well, To Australia in 86-87, and uh, spoiler alert, England won the Ashes, they won the Perth Challenge, and they won the World Series Cup as well. It was a trifecta of unparalleled success, and this is the story of how that happened. Mike, usually it's the baggage handlers at Sydney Airport who are informing England that they can't bat, can't bowl and can't field. This time it was the English press themselves. Uh, What was the thought of of the Australians in general as this team who had not been very good, let's face it, in the uh, run-up to the tour... Uh, arrived in Australia to play uh, this long winter, uh, English winter of cricket?
1: Well, it's, it was an interesting one, Gary, because I mean England were probably playing as badly as were Australia at that time. I think England had lost uh, three series in succession and eight of their previous 11 test matches against the West Indies, India and New Zealand. So I don't think the English hopes were particularly high. Uh, the Australians um, had lost 12 and won three and tied one of their previous 27 Test matches and had lost five and drawn two series since 1983-84. So the Australian expectations, if anything, were probably even lower. So it was extraordinary that these two teams, the, the sort of the great teams of, uh, of the game uh, to which the rest of the world historically and traditionally look for inspiration, um, were at the bottom of the uh, were bottom of the polling at that stage. It was, it was unusual that both great teams should have such uh, unproductive periods. From an Australian point of view, it was interesting because from 1986 in New Zealand, where Australia lost, of course, in New Zealand in 85, 86, both at home and in New Zealand, which is a very rare occurrence. Alan Border was the captain. was the closest I've seen to a captain to a nervous breakdown in New Zealand in 1986. It was, it was a very sad, empty period in Australian cricket. He had managed at last to regain control needed tremendous support from management and from his vice captain, David Boone. But uh, let's say expectations weren't high. But after the Thai Test match and being competitive in the last test in Delhi, I think there was a sense that perhaps they turned the corner. Then, of course, they get to Brisbane and what should happen? It's Ian Botham yet again. Um, and that really destroyed the Australians and their confidence. And from that point, I mean, immediately they, had the, the, they were thinking of 1981, uh, the great Botham series, and suddenly he's at it again. And psychologically, it was destructive. And so uh, until the last Test match, it was a pretty empty time for the Australians without in any way um, detracting from the performance uh, the very good performance of the England side, and particularly of uh, our panelists tonight in Chris Broad, who was just outstanding
0: well let 's let 's go to chris Chris, you were a uh, subject of the England selection, which was a bit like yoki koki wasn 't it It was in out <laughs> in, and you would had a spell playing for England, then you were out of the side, and then you were recalled for this uh, series. you go out to Australia the Warm-up matches don't go particularly well. Um you're off to the Gabba to play the first test. What was what was the feeling in the camp?
3: Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm in mean, the selection policy at that time and I remember making my debut at Lord's in 1984 where the chairman of selectors Peter May came up to me and said, "Congratulations. Here's your sweater and cap. You've got two test matches to show us what you've got." And <laughs> and it was Right. Okay. <laughs> so I went out and fortunately got 50 in the first innings and played yeah. for most of that uh, summer, but then got left out. So Australia was my first tour. And although I'd met some of the guys before, it was still very new when we arrived at the hotel at Heathrow Airport and walked in and both of them was at the bar chatting with Eric Clapton. And, uh, you know, it, it was just surreal. We spent the night in that hotel, boarded the plane after having photographs and media done uh, the the morning before and arrived in in Australia. And to me, it was the lads together. We were just all doing our stuff. I remember almost getting off the plane and going and playing golf because we had to try and stay awake as long as possible to recover from jet lag. Uh, And then we set off on this month of playing state games where we were awful. We, we really were, you know, we, we struggled to take wickets. We struggled to score runs. Um, and there was an awful lot of social activity from the uh, the senior members uh, who had been to Australia before and, and were thoroughly enjoying themselves. And um, I didn't know how much angst there was behind the scenes because I wasn't a member of the management group or anything like that. But I knew as soon as we got to um, Brisbane and Botham stood up at the team meeting, uh, the team meal the night before the test match started and he was effing and blinding at all of us. uh, And all of a sudden, this was a completely different Ian Botham to the month previous, where he was deadly serious about this game of cricket that was going to start tomorrow. And for me, that was the the pivotal moment of the whole tour where you knew that here was both of who hadn't done very much on the field prior to that, standing up and and making it all count. Gower got runs, Lamb got runs, you know, all the senior players um, started to take it very much more seriously. And I think that fed down to the lesser experienced players of the squad.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the first test there, it's a, it's a rare failure for you in the uh, first innings, but your somewhat makeshift opening partner, Bill Addy, uh, he bats for the thick end of five hours to make 76, mm. Gatting makes 61, Lamb makes 40, Gower makes 51, and as Mike has already alluded, Ian Botham uh, just adds yet more to the mythology of, of Botham against the Australians with a, with a ton, with four sixes, mm. almost unheard of in those days. Um, England make 456, and the blinking of an eye, Australia are following
3: on. Um, Pat, and there was a saying? rest day. We had rest days in those days, and it just worked perfectly for us because <laughs> we, on the Saturday we'd uh, fielded for a long period of time, stuck the Australians back into bat, I think, and then we had a rest day to recover, which was fantastic. <laughs> it was very
1: much the, the traditional tour of Australia, wasn't it? I mean, those days was. are gone. I mean, observers would look at it and be bemused by it all, starting in Bundaberg and then, of course, the home of Rum. So um, both of them would have particularly enjoyed that. And then on to the Queensland Agricultural College at Laws for a match with the South <laughs> Queensland Country 11. <laughs> Just astonishing, how do you think of it? And then, of course, off to South Australia and up into the far north in Woodna. I yes. think that the air sickness was the biggest
3: issue, Chris, wasn't it, it, it? on the way to Woodner? The, the air sickness and the flies, oh my word, the number <laughs> of flies that attacked us in Woodner was just extraordinary.
0: <laughs> well we're going to come to some of the social side in a, in a moment with uh with pat but i just want to to get the reaction of the of the media corps, pat because they had probably lined up their uh inkwells of vitriol and had to swap them over for uh the rosewater of, of writing about this uh glorious english victory what what was it like amongst the media i don't think that
2: was a major problem to be frank gary it was just the the, the independent correspondent who coined the can't bat, can't bowl. Ah, yeah. uh, like. And uh, and the England players got the last laugh because they all got T-shirts printed with that motif <laughs> on it towards the end of the towards the end of the tour. So well played, England players. It was a very long tour. Nineteen weeks, by the way. Mm. Uh, we didn't get to Sydney till the eleventh week. Went to Perth three times. Perth second test match. Brisbane uh, first test match. That's as far as London to Moscow. Uh, so it really was a long slog, but. Personally, it was my happiest tour for all sorts of reasons. Uh, It was just great fun. And uh, very, very quickly, the the, the travelling press corps thought, well done, it's really nice to stick it up the Aussies for once. Uh, So uh, there was never any danger of the media not coming on board with England. I will have to say on a serious point, the England management got it just right. Mickey Stewart's first tour as coach, Peter Lush, the manager, very, very light hand on the tiller. Not much travelling itinerary there. Not not many other hangers-on at all. And Gatting, Gatting was superb as captain on that tour. He played great cricket in Sydney. He liked Aussies. They liked him. That Falstaffian figure, Henry VIII, in later years. And he was nicknamed the bread van by one or two people because he was squat, square, and he liked to trough. But he took responsibility at key times. David Gara had gone on that tour under the caution in all sorts of areas. Leicestershire had taken the captaincy away from him after England had sacked him as captain. He wasn't getting many runs. He got a pair against Western Australia. He was, he was struggling. At 29 years of age and we wondered uh, about Davis' career but Gatting took responsibility and switched himself to three led from the front Gower ended up averaging 57 in the series only second to, to one BC broad who, was, who averaged 69 uh, by the way um, Chris got a new nickname um, halfway through the tour uh, Gatting <laughs> coined it they started to call him Huda as in, who <laughs> da
3: thought it? Yes, who Yeah, I'll add to Gattings as well. His was Jabber the Hut as well. Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris, is it true? Is
2: it true you mentioned Peter May there? Your first cap in in eighty four against West Indies. Is it true that then chairman selectors Peter May, who wasn't known for his forensic knowledge of current
3: players, called you Brian because you were <laughs> christened Brian Christopher Broad. That is absolutely true. At the evening meal the prior to the Test match, I was very keen to come down and uh, and be part of this this meal. Uh, so I was the first to arrive and he was in the room and he turned round and uh, said, "Ah, oh, Brian, yes, how are you? Like, what? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> almost
2: as good as Ted Dex are calling that splendid Derbyshire fast bowler Malcolm Devon. Malcolm yeah. Devon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Again against the others. Yeah. Okay. So 89. England,
0: England win the 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 first test at the uh, in Brisbane, and then in the second test, England are batting first. It's yourself, uh, Chris, mm. not Brian, and Bill Addy mm. going out to bat. Now the Aussies are obviously looking to strike back as they as they would do, um, but the two of you. Um, out two sessions and, and, and a bit and, and blunt the Australian attack. What did it feel like in that seven hours that you were at the crease there? Uh,
3: do you know, I have memories obviously of that tour, but I think as a batsman, as a cricket player, you go through phases where you don't actually remember anything about the particular phase of play. And, you know, my role as an opening batsman, Bill's role as an opening batsman, was to see off the new ball. And Perth was renowned for being a really good pitch, good bounce, good pace, which is just up my street. And they brought in Chris Matthews, they had uh, Jeff Lawson, uh, Bruce Reed. So they had a reasonable attack, but they'd also, the previous winter, lost a number of bowlers to South Africa who went on a rebel tour. So they were all fairly inexperienced bowlers. But it just started really well for us. There was very little sideways movement. Um, Bill and I had worked up some sort of relationship uh, as an opening batting pair. And the left-hand, right-hand combination seemed to confuse the Australians. and, And it was just you know, as soon as you got the, the ball past the infield on the outfield at Perth, it just ran away. It's like an upturned saucer and and was very fast. And I don't know how many fours we scored, but it seemed to be most of the runs scored were, were boundaries where you were getting it past the infield and it was going to the boundary. And yes, I mean, you know, just after T, I think I got my 100. And then Bill, unfortunately, got bowled by a yorker four runs short of his hundred which would have been fantastic and uh, and we we really did set the game up and uh, and and it was just a fantastic game well in fact the whole series was was fantastic uh, with the pitches that they, we played on i tell you one thing i remember most about that test
2: match chris and with respect it wasn't your innings it was a wonderful catch by you at backward short leg ian Botham Steam. again got again got lucky jeff marsh yeah. do
3: you remember it? Jeff Marsh, I remember uh, taking the catch and Steve War was the non-striking batsman. And I don't know what made me catch his eye, but he looked at me and he nodded approval. Um, so it must have been a a great catch but I got hands in the right place. You don't often hear
2: the term fantastic catch and BC Broad in the same sentence. (laughs) Steady Pat, steady, (laughs) that's that's (laughs) unkind.
1: Very uncharitable.
0: Uh, You've mentioned uh, uh, Chris the fact that the Australians were somewhat under strength and the at the Gabba, the three fast bowlers had only nine tests between them. That would be Bruce Reed, Murph Hughes and Chris Matthews. Jeff Lawson, somewhat surprisingly, uh, the twelfth man at the Gabba, but having failed to strike back immediately against uh, the English, although Australia did come away with a with a comfortable draw from from Perth. What was the what was the reaction amongst the Australian public, Mike?
1: Well, f- fairly subdued. Um, Chris Matthews's uh, debut was um, was <laughs> eventful to say the least, as Chris would know. He was overwhelmed by the occasion. When he came back a little later and played again, he was just as overwhelmed, so he had a very short career. Bruce Reed was a very fine bowler um, and was to go on to better things with uh, Tony Dodomade in Pakistan in 1988 where he was really quite remarkable, Reed. You wouldn't believe him now. I mean, he was uh, such a stick-like figure, tall left arm, a lot of lift, a nice variation, nice outswinger. Uh, he's now a very substantial uh, individual. Um, it's hard to believe. I mean, I think in, in those days he, it was suggested that he might have used his, uh, his, his batting bag as a, as a sleeping bag. I mean, it was, he, was so, he was so slender. It was, ex- it was astonishing. But he was a very fine bowler. Yes, the, uh, the Australian public were, were subdued pretty quickly. They, it had been a very unsettling time. I mean, this was not long after World Series cricket. It was not long after the Rebels to South Africa. The stocks were denuded, and hence that very inexperienced attack in uh, in Brisbane. Uh, Jeff Lawson was still trying to uh, to re-establish himself in the side. So um, yes, let's say that there there were no great expectations. Uh, border was starting to get a little bit more comfortable um, in the in the leadership role, but it wasn't really until 1989 and the triumph there. Um, after the World Cup success of '87 uh, in Calcutta, um, until the Ashes in '89, that he really started to feel comfortable. So it, it was a difficult, evolving time for Australian cricket.
2: And do you know, Mike? Mike, I felt there was an inferiority complex about Australian cricket that, that series because you remember we get to Adelaide, you're one nil down. Both of them is out with the intercostal problem, very, very painful. James Whittaker debut, that in effect, a bowler short. Australia back first, and Mike Gatting, is first change, bowling, the bread van, within the first hour. And, Bro- and Boone who was hanging on to his place, Batted five hours for 100. I know how important Boone was, but 207 for two, day one, when you're chasing the series. I remember thinking to myself yeah. at the time, they've gone. They're not going to get back in this series. This is very un-Australian. England were there for the taking at Adelaide. And you were very porky and conservative with a small c yeah,
1: and I'd agree with that i mean it it was uneducated cricket at the time yeah um it was a, it was a difficult period in the in the evolution, and it was uneducated cricket, and it was going to be a, you know it wasn't really until eighty nine, as you would remember there, that they, there was a semblance of the the great um, yeah. disciplined and um, unconditionally professional Australian teams. It was still a couple of years away.
0: John Thickness writing in the in Wisden. Um, The quote I have from him here is he said, overall, however, there could be little doubt that the responsibility for Australia's continued struggles rested squarely with their board, which I think was the ACB at that time rather than Cricket Australia that it is now. Um, What were the board doing or indeed failing to do that, that... led to this sort of lack of, as Pat's pointed out, this kind of lack of confidence in Australian cricket, which is a very rare thing.
1: Yes, it is a rare thing. It's, it's, it's very true. It's hard to look back on the personalities that uh, that were involved then. I think it was the consequence of the tumult leading on from World Series cricket. Um, you know, we're only talking 78, 79, 80, the explosion of uh, of 81 with Greg Chappell at the uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground, which is one of the worst surfaces in the world at that point. So we've moved into the mid 80s, but there was so much baggage, there was so much baggage, and so much had been invested in uh, Alan Border. The one key appointment, which was a significant one, was Laurie Saul as chairman of selectors and the decision to involve the likes of McDermott and Steve War in the future. They virtually drew a line and said, this is what we've got to go with, and uh, put a tremendous amount of pressure on the likes of McDermott and Steve Waugh to come through, and in time they did, but it was just a period of, uh, of regeneration, and uh, they really, it was so, as you point out, Gary, it was so unusual, there was no one there really who knew how to handle it.
2: But it all comes down to players also fundamentally, a lot of those very, very fine Australian players subsequently were blooded during that eighty six seven tour, and I suspect they never forgot it. But you know England hit their straps, they were still worried about both of them. He still had that hex over them. Gower really showed his plumage, of course Dilly Graham Dilly swung the ball at pace, Gladstone Small was a revelation. he swung the ball, and also he slipped in a few uh, testing bouncers also Chris of course. Blossom and the spinners, you know, Embry and Edmonds are allowed to bowl 600 overs. They've got 33 wiggers between them. They only went for 2.08 runs per over. Now, that is very un Australian. So they're porky approach allied to the fact that england played really well and they were very well captained by uh, gatting i think
0: 2-1 really flattered us really and it should have been 3-0 england should have won in sydney i was amazed to see how many overs the middlesex spin twins bowled and indeed their economy rate as you've said there was seems to have been no attempt to kind of hit them off their lines and lengths and you usually think of Australian pitchers and finger spinners, and and be thinking let's tuck in. But um, clearly they they were at their peak of their powers. They obviously knew how to bowl in tandem, and that was a key to England's success. They were allowed
2: to bowl though, Gary. They were allowed yeah. to bowl uncharacteristically by the Aussie batsmen.
0: That's very true, Pat. But uh, the player of the the series, as we've already pointed out at the top of the show, was uh, Brian Christopher Broad. And, um, Chris, this was your second of three consecutive uh, centuries that led, uh, at least in large part, to to that award. Uh, Were you in this mythical place that those of us who who don't play uh, the game at at any level uh, understand, known as the zone where it it all (laughs) just sort of happens...
3: Yeah, I think absolutely. It's uh I had a huge amount of confidence the the whole touring party. I think that first test match win, you know, there was so much uh, excitement and exuberance within the party uh, that, you know, when we went to Newcastle and we failed in a in a, a practice game prior to the Perth test match, it didn't really matter because when the, we arrived in Perth for the next test match, you know, there was a, a real feeling of belief within the camp. And, and that obviously had an effect on, on how I was playing. Uh, I remember Border saying, you know, just telling his bowlers, don't forget that Chris Broad plays off his legs and bowling outside his off stump because he he, he thought that every shot seemed to be going through the, the leg side. You know, my theory was that if it was pitching anywhere around middle, middle and leg then I was going to hit it through the leg side because it was that there were less fielders there. Uh, and it took them pretty much most of the series to work out that uh, that was my strength, really. But it was, it was one of those periods where, you know, it was a purple patch. It was just brilliant. I loved every moment of it. The pitches in Australia suited me. The bowling obviously suited me. The weather was fantastic. I mean, it was just ideal. Chris, what do you do with the car? Ah, the car, yes. Well, it, it, in, those <laughs> days, it, in those days, it was a third, a third, and a third. A third to the player, which was me. A third to the team, which was uh, obviously the rest of the boys. And a third to the taxman. So we sold it in Australia. But I was very fortunate that Alfa Romeo... Saw a, a marketing area where they could get involved, and they gave me a car when I got back to England for two oh, years. Right, so, right. Well, uh, the I best bet, of both worlds, really. I bet, I bet that went down with it with the, the dressing room at Trent Bridge. I bet they thought. <laughs> <you'd> be... <laughs> well, <laughs> funnily, funnily enough, the dressing room at Trent Bridge was uh, was quite sombre because Richard Hadley had won the uh, international <laughs> figure of the year award the previous year. So right. I was <laughs> in the footsteps. We had a great conversation about that. Really. I bet you did. I bet you did. <laughs>
1: there wasn't too much sharing of the car with paddles in 856 uh,
3: no 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 <laughs> i bet i uh, know no he he seemed he seemed to take most of it for himself didn't he <laughs> well we we we
0: go to melbourne for the traditional high spot of the australian summer the boxing day Test and at the end of Boxing Day, uh, Australia are all out 141, and England have knocked 95 of them off for the loss of one wicket. You're not out overnight, uh, Chris. Was was the feeling was if we just uh, play steady here, the Ashes are retained, or how how was it at, at Melbourne to where the Ashes were retained? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, prior to the Test match starting, there was a link-up with uh, Noel Edmonds and one of his uh, TV shows back here in the UK, which uh, we were asked to attend. So the whole team was there, you know, well into the early evening or uh, late evening. And there was some concern that it was dragging on further and further, that we weren't going to get enough sleep before the Test match started. But um, yeah, bowling the Australians out was strange but uh, you know, then to be ninety odd for for one overnight, there was there were no real instructions. It was like crack on, lads. Let's carry on. You know, doing our stuff. The ball had obviously lost its hardness, and we went out and carried on in the same vein. I, I don't remember any specific instructions coming from Mickey Stewart. He was, he you know, was just like, let's just carry on. Do you know it was all over in three days, Chris? Do you remember? Yeah.
2: I, I do. I, I'll never forget the crowd on those three days. First day, fifty, nearly sixty thousand. Then, uh, obviously, England in the in sentencing. Second day, thirty thousand. Third mm. day, it can't really be more than about twelve thousand. The Aussies just gave up uh, on their side. And you remember Pat Cash was almost single-handedly winning yes. the Davis Cup against Sweden next door at Flinders Park Tennis, and the term that. Cricket off the televisions at the MCG and put Pat Cash on instead. It'd be wrong to say the Aussies take a defeat well, and that on, <laughs> on day three. And then that I'll never forget the the Melbourne the Melbourne Age it may well be that Mr Cow was writing for them at the time. He's written for almost every other publication you can think of. And you Keep had to playing. you had to search for a report about England retaining the Ashes uh, on that fourth morning when there was no play because it was all about Pat Cash and glorious Australian tennis win. It was just astonishing and so heartening. Chris, playing in front of 12,000 at the MCG, which can hold 140-odd thousand. Billy Graham gave a sermon there once, and 140-odd thousand. The the South Stand can hold two lords' capacities – what was that like, playing in front of 12,000 on day three when you're going to smash the Aussies again? Do
3: you know, I have no idea. Crowd <laughs> didn't really mean a, a great deal to me. When we walked out uh, that first evening, first afternoon, having bowled the Aussies out, they were very quiet. There was no buzz of, of uh, anticipation, no abuse from Bay 13. You know, it was all very calm and, uh, and surreal, And because the MCG is such an enormous venue, you're out in the middle, so far away from, and unless you're on the boundaries edge, so far away from the crowd, it's very difficult to hear what is going on or appreciate it. And and any buzz of of excitement or noise tends to get lost in in the atmosphere because the, the arena is so big. Even nowadays with so much bigger stands that there are at the MCG. It is an enormous place. It is quite extraordinary. Of course in those days we used to have to walk through the crowd to get down onto the field of play. So you were quite close to some of the spectators as you were walking down on the field. You know I think because we'd won the first test match and the second test match was drawn and as Mike has rightly said, you know, the Australian public were more interested in uh, you know in in their Poor form than in England playing well. That we didn't really get a huge amount of abuse from uh, from the Australian public. They were just, I suppose, appreciative of of good cricket, but disappointed in their own team.
1: Well, Melbourne, Chris, is a, as you know, is a very very intelligent cricket crowd, and they would respect. And we must keep in <laughs> mind through all of this that um, while there's always tremendous competitiveness between the two. Gatting and Gower would be two of the all-time Australian favourites of England cricketers. They are both much loved and, of course, they are both together in this uh, this series and that would have accounted for some of it. The respect for those two is enormous. That's right. Good point. Gat having played at Balmain, David having played in Perth. Um, you know, so th- there was affection for them but and respect for the way you played and particularly for the way you played, Chris. I mean, it was a remarkable series. Did you ever strike such a vain a form again?
3: I-, I wasn't given the opportunity, Mike, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, we-, we mentioned the Australian uh, Laurie Saul and the Australian selectors picking out the spine of, of the Australian team, the likes of Boone, the... the, the Sadly, recently passed uh, Dean Jones, uh, Alan Border. You know all these people who they said, "Right, you are our future." Uh, our selectors carried on in the old vein of you know a couple of test matches, and if you don't produce yeah. form, then you're out. And uh, and I played twice in that '89 series at the beginning, and and then was left out. So. It wasn't until I think David Graveney some years later took over as chairman of selectors and he said, right, we are now going to pick people and stick with them for a period of time to, so that they can really show us their form, that England started to to get a, a more confident uh, group of players who knew that they weren't going to be in, out, uh, you know, horses for courses type players. So, you know, I, I came back from Australia, played against Pakistan I was told later that there was some question marks as to whether I would go on tour to Pakistan because I didn't, wasn't particularly good against spin, but I, I did go and played in the World Cup. But then I, I was left out again. So it was, it was very fickle, the selection policy that, we, that England uh, pursued in the 80s. you probably realised the England selectors, Chris, that
2: if you'd gone to Pakistan and you were given out to batting with Graham Gooch, you'd refuse to leave the
3: pitch. Oh, steady, Pat. Come on, <laughs> let's let's focus on the positives, the, please. The, the, current,
2: the, the, current IC, the current ICC referee said, "No, I'm not going." No, no, yep. No. Um, uh, actually, old jo- It's true. Old joke in the side. Mike Coward, were you in that press conference day three, evening three, when Alan Border faced? Us all. Were you there? Were you scribbling some elegant essay? Take me to what he. What, what did well, he say? The reason why I say this because it began, and this just summed up the whole Australian mentality. Border looking absolutely shocking. I don't know there's a Melbourne branch of the Samaritans, but by God, he needed it. <laughs> and Eng- England in excelsis. And the first question from an Aussie who stood over for them, on a very, very narrow, small press room then those days at mcg it was sweaty and horrible and the guy began this tense press conference with quote AB, what's it like being a captain of the worst australian
1: side ever
2: mm. great way to begin the press conference
1: i can imagine how ab uh, i mean it oh. was so fragile at that time anyway yeah um, I mean, I, even to this day, I'm not sure whether everyone appreciates just how much he gave single-handedly to rebuild and reconstruct Australian cricket. Yeah. He had so little help. I think you can mount an argument that from Bradman to Benno, you can then go border. And I think it's, I think it's a credible argument
2: very good, yeah, because Mark Taylor, who was a brilliant captain, took over a brilliant side.
0: There was an element of darkest before the dawn, because yeah. uh, come the next Ashes series in 1989, the uh, yep. shoe was very much on the on the other foot, but we'll go back to the 86-87 tour. The Australians um, won a kind of consolation, I think we can call it a consolation victory at uh, Sydney to ensure the series ended up 2-1, but uh, England enjoyed victory in the uh, Perth Challenge over uh, a good Pakistan side as well as uh, Australia and then in the World Series Cup um, the ODI series they uh, they beat the West Indies and Australia to, to complete that uh, triple crown and, and Chris your form continued in, in the one days where only yeah. Dean Jones scored more runs than you did
3: yeah I, I, again crisscrossing Australia um, it was it, it, we were on a magic carpet ride really going from one venue ah. to another uh, and these venues held very happy memories for me because I, I'd scored runs in in pretty much most of the the venues before, so and it, and it was the same team. Whereas nowadays you get uh, a T20 team, an ODI team, and a test team. You know, we were one squad playing in all four months of the game. So it was, yeah, just changing colours. We, we were in new clothing, blue clothing for the uh, Perth Challenge. Uh, which included the West Indies as well. Oh, right, they were there, yeah. I think it was right, yeah. And then we had the World Series Cup. So again, it was a change of clothing, but it was it was the same old form. And, and uh, yeah, I loved it. I, my role, although the roles have significantly changed now, whereas the top uh, three or four batsmen come out and they try and smash the opening bowlers anywhere and everywhere, you know, that was Botham's role pretty much when he was uh, moved up the order. But my role was still to try and see off the, the new ball and uh, and and set it up for the glory boys in the middle order. Yeah. And Chris, what about Alan
2: Lambs over against Bruce Reeves yeah. to win, win that game at the death? What a display of hitting that was.
3: Yeah, that was extraordinary, really, because he, he hadn't found the middle of the bat at all in the yeah. whole of his innings up to that point. And, uh, and, and there was that famous thing where he... Uh, Dirk Wellham, I think, threw the ball in from uh, cover boundary and Lamb got in the way of the throw as it was coming back into Bruce Reid. And at the last minute, jumped out the way and Reid fumbled it, which allowed Alan Lamb to get back for a second. And he continued to thrash the ball for the rest of the over and we won the game. Yeah, fantastic game. Fantastic. It was. And... uh... Pat
0: you've already mentioned Eric Clapton in the in the bar. I mean this was and you've already said it was a happy tour. Um off the field it was a kind of selfie fans paradise if such things were around them because the, the A listers were were in town with the England cricket team and as you've said um it was it was a great time was had by all. Uh, I'm sure some of the stories are, are are still very much in the omerta but if you can let us in on on some of what went on we'd be delighted. Well, I was I was amused by Chris saying
2: the management were worried about the players getting getting to bed early early <laughs> enough. I, I, I don't think that was much of a problem on that tour. Not least because <laughs> you kept winning. That's always the key thing in sport, isn't yeah. it? Elton John, big friend of Ian Botham's, was part of the tour for a long time. Chris may remember he'd been doing a massive tour of Australia as well, so he kept coming in and out. And my good friend Chris Lander and I, and I we were spend about the time with them. I was writing a biography of both them, which when it came out it came out the week he broke his back and didn't play again for the rest of the season so great timing that was and, and <laughs> dear old Crash Lander was writing Ian Botham's uh, column for the newspaper so we we were very lucky and I remember when they won at Melbourne do you remember Chris there was a uh, Ian Botham he was he lived, he was in Suites all during that period. Yes, was out with there, his with family, well. yes. Yeah. And he had to deal with Penfolds, the winemakers. Oh, what glory that was. <laughs> and, and Elton John, uh, I'm name-dropping so much, it's hitting, it's hitting the floor and coming straight back into my hand. But Elton John was the DJ that night. And CDs <laughs> he, had, he had a party in his suite. That's it. And CDs had just started. And he sent John Reed, his manager, off to get a pack of CDs because all the, the Botham's Tamla Motam CDs had more or less been um, played into oblivion throughout that tour. So Elton John is a DJ, and to his great credit, he didn't play any of his um, tracks at all. So Lander and I were in there with all of you players and we we sat there thinking, my God, this is amazing. If they could see us now drinking Penfolds, (laughs) swapping (laughs) anecdotes with the International Cricket of the Year, Brian Broad, and and, and, (laughs) and, and, and all sorts of of other folk. And it was was access all areas, that tour. And I remember Peter Taylor, 30 years of age, got eight wickets in the Sydney Test Match. Now, this would never, ever happen now. Uh, i'd never met him before he's outside the scg with his family big hug and a kiss well done we've beaten the palms well played i'd introduce myself can kind of have an interview because folks back home would want to know about peter taylor he sat on the grass poured us both a glass of wine and i'm interviewing the man of the match who i've never met before all of my own no press officer nobody's saying who the hell are you it was just a fantastic tour and we had time then i mentioned 19 weeks. In between the Adelaide and the Melbourne Test match uh, Christmas, Jack Bannister and I hired a car, and we drove five, six days all the way from Adelaide to Melbourne down the East Coast road, which is fabulous, stopping at all sorts of places. Christopher Martin Jenkins, our correspondent, was doing the day-to-day stuff, so I got a few days off. And that never happened again on another tour for me. And I'm sure Mike had the same experience, whereby it became Hotel Airport Stadium. But England were very accessible and sociable, and a lot of people there were my friends anyway in that tour party, and subsequently became so, even Chris Broad to this day. Uh, so for me, that was a very, very happy tour. And what you do is you, you just hang around, and then you get introduced to Eric Clapton and Elton John. <laughs> and, and, and Chris Landra and I sat around the pool, the Hilton the, the Mel, uh, MCG, talking Watford Football Club with Elton John while waiting for
0: Beefy Botham to appear. We both sat there pinching ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to to kind of wrap up this section by handing back to Mike to say that, obviously, this was a, a low point for Australian cricket. You've already indicated uh, some of the reasons why. It would have broken lesser men, but um, it was the start of Alan Border's renaissance, which... Uh, was brought very much home to us in in England in 89 with a 4-0 that could easily have been a a 6-0, which led to the dominance of the team over the subsequent years under Mark Taylor, then uh, Steve Waugh, Ricky Ponting, a, a real dynasty coming. What What did Australian cricket change to
1: give rise to that rise, so to speak? It's an interesting one, uh, Gary. I, just before we get on to that, I think in the light of recent events, we just should say that Dean Jones, um, who was a fine man and an innovator and a very accomplished cricketer, his death recently has subdued the uh, Australian cricket community like yes. you wouldn't believe. I think people are starting to understand that the contribution he made was very, very considerable. He was a fine test player played the finest test innings I've seen in, in terms of courage, the double hundred in the tie test at Madras. And of course, as a limited over player, he was an innovator and a coach. And that coaching, while he never coached in Australia to the level he should have, uh, he made an enormous contribution to the cricket in Pakistan and Afghanistan in more recent years. So I think we just should mention what, uh, what a remarkable Australian cricket he was. And of course, one of Borders very close mates borders has been absolutely devastated at his passing i think the key factor was while they lost in india in 1986 and struggled desperately in this series in 86 87 they went to back to the world cup in 87 they were a more worldly and aware side from probably from the hurt of this defeat in 86 7 uh, and borders deep hurt which he shared with the nation I mean, even in early in 86 in New Zealand, he said, unless I have unconditional commitment and respect and care, I will not do this job. Uh, It was it was very confronting at a confronting time in Australian cricket history. I think they became more aware. They became more worldly. They became more optimistic. Uh, and, some, and Jones, of course, was among them. Uh, Steve War started to develop. Jeff Marsh became a vice captain and a very good one. Boone was a fine player. Uh, and they just became more organised, more thoughtful, and at last, unconditional. And that was the big key. We talked about that word early, uh, particularly with Malcolm Marshall, about being conditional or unconditional. And the, the Australians were conditional there for too long, but suddenly under border they developed into an unconditionally professional side and a more intelligent side. And um, with, without losing the competitiveness, without losing the qualities that have made Australian cricket unique, uh, they went on to be very powerful. And I think to, to a large degree, it came from the hurt of 86, 87. I, I also wonder, Mike, hear, hear, by the way, about Dean Jones.
2: Terrific fella. Of course. You, you, you'd never hear the words no comment and Dean Jones in the same sentence. He was brilliant exact- with that. Exactly. Brilliant, he very, very giving, wasn't he? He was. I'd like to add one point. I think you're absolutely right about the World Cup in 87, that turning point in Calcutta. Australia won by seven runs. Well played. Genuinely pleased for you. And that led to a, a, a heck of a lot thereafter. If Mike Gatting had not played that reverse <laughs> sweep to Borden's <laughs> first ball, all uh, joking aside, England were winning that.
3: That, oh, that, yeah. well, no really? question about it. I hope he, didn't, Gat- he didn't pick me, though, Pat. That, that was also a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be
2: wrong to say that Chris has dwelled on a few of his disappointments. <laughs> but 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 all joking aside, because Gatting was such a brilliant player of um, slow bowling, as you know, and I know to this day he regrets that. I'm absolutely convinced that England would have won that, t- that final. And I wonder, Mike, how delayed would the Australian Renaissance be thereafter? Because this is November '87, and you were in ignominy in January '87 after England had whopped you. I wonder how long it would
1: take him. It's a good point, Pat. It's a good point. Of course, we should say that Bob Simpson was, um, yeah. was managing and coaching, and I mean his contribution as captain, coach over over many many years. A difficult a difficult figure in Australian cricket history, a very political animal, but a remarkable um, cricket person and educator. So combined, and, of course, he, he provided enormous support to border and direction for border. Um, but that's a very pertinent point. It meant so much. 87 just meant so much. It just was more than a glimmer. Um, and, of course, the Steve Waugh's contribution in that cup, and, among yep. others. Yeah, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You, you, you would have got there. Can you look at those players?
2: My word, in that final. Boone, Jones, McDermott, Border, War, uh, Bruce Reed, Marsh. You, yeah. had the, you had the nucleus and then you just blossomed.
1: Mark War yeah. wasn't far away. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh, Healy, Healy. Oh, tremendous. Yeah. Tremendous side yeah. eventually. But I just feel it might have been delayed.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a pertinent point.
2: Thank the Lord it wasn't. One of the rare ones I've made so far today.
0: <laughs> well i i, I want to I want to give the last word to the international cricketer of the season in 86 eighty seven and for those of us civilians, we look back with some pride on finishing second in a pub quiz in 1984 but um, what about what about yourself Chris? Do you get together and uh, when you see your, your old colleagues from that tour and and can reminisce or is it just part of the, the life of a professional cricketer in a time when things came together for you and you got some results How's how do you You see it looking back now
3: yeah we haven't yet had a celebratory dinner which uh you know can be an occurrence when things go well for teams over the years uh but yes I mean obviously I, I go to international matches overseas most of the time but certainly in in this country when I'm watching Stewart play and I will catch up with the likes of Gower and Gatting and Botham and uh lamb and Gladstone small and uh so you do t- and and you just pick up it's like friendships renewed rather than forgotten and and having to be um completely redeveloped when you shared uh four and a half months on tour with a team you do get to know these guys really well and and they are just like brothers really in that you just Keep saying friendly things, and and we, we don't tend to text very much because we didn't grow up in that era. But when you meet, you can socialise and talk about anything else. And and it was for me, it was the happiest of times. And and really, I think has has probably given me the life that I'm living at the moment. Uh, you know, now as a as a match referee, still involved in the international game, still seeing some of the the most fantastic cricket matches around the world and i'm I'm very fortunate i'm so fortunate to be doing this job and uh, and a job that I love which all stemmed from uh, what happened in australia in eighty six eighty seven
2: and and very very sadly, Chris, two of those players are no longer with us'll slack and Graham. yeah very very yeah. fine players. and but the great thing about it you know
3: is that Chris and I we got a book out of it didn't we Chris uh, we did we did pat yes yeah. and you're still slagging me off i can't believe it you know <laughs> the, the amount of money i gave you for
2: that book it's ridiculous it was it was it was it, was, um, it slipped from the fingers of many many people <laughs> in their in their dotage and and it, it qualifies as one of the worst titles ever for a cricket book because <laughs> the, the publishers kept saying well chris broad story or something like that get a pun on Broad. no 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 how about because he's this plain speaker chris broad doesn't care what he says how about home truths from abroad not a truth in it either. <laughs> Somehow we prevailed, and uh, and and up and down the land, um, copies of that were available at um, fifteen pence and many many charity shops. Well, on that
0: on that bombshell, as they say, we'll wrap up uh, today's uh, episode of the '80s and '90s cricket show. Uh, I can just thank our contributors uh, this week for their splendid contributions. Uh, first of all, Chris Broad, thank you very much,
1: Chris. Thanks, Gary. Been a pleasure. Mike Coward. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Gary. It's been a delight to be with you all, and particularly with Pat. (laughs) The inevitable...
2: Pat Murphy that's, that's very kind of you Mike The Mutual, Soci- Mutual Admiration Society continues to blossom it would be gritty, good, to up, <laughs> good to catch up to you at some stage the man, the man whose cravats were often at a rakish angle uh, But also great to catch up with Chris again And uh, I hope people realise that uh, the leg pulling is laced with much affection and respect
0: It is indeed <laughs> Thank you very much We'll be back in a fortnight's time With the next episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show Thank you very much